The subject we're going to talk about tonight is fascinating. It helps to reveal things in the Bible that uh, a lot of people find confusing, and I think that the Bible makes it clear. Uh, remember, the, the principle is let, that we let the Bible interpret itself. Uh, so, with that, the mystery beast of Revelation. The mile-long train was on the railroad track unattended with one of its six locomotives running. And most people walked by, they didn't really notice much because it wasn't uncommon for a locomotive to sit running. It was just idling, nothing was really happening. Uh, something happened though there in southern Quebec, just east of Montreal, and that idling engine, somehow the brakes stopped working properly and it got put in gear. Nobody was on it, so nobody really knows what was happening or why it happened, but the, um, I guess earlier that night the fire department had responded to some, uh, to a fire that was happening in the area and maybe, maybe something happened uh, that was related to the fire. Nobody really knows, but the, the, the train started rolling slowly down the track. And uh, it was at the top of the hill, and it was going downhill towards uh, Lac Megantic, I believe is the name of the town in Montreal, six miles away. And so it had quite a, quite a ways to catch up speed, and it was going between 60 and 70 miles an hour by the time it got down to this little town. And the, the train was sparking and, and listing back and forth. I'm not sure what you call it when the train uh, shakes and stuff because the, at parts of this rail, uh, the, the speed limit was only 10 miles an hour. So 60 or 70 miles an hour was way beyond what the, the track could handle. Anyway, it gets down to the town, it falls over, just uh, spreads all of its cars all over the place. And they're full of oil. And so there's great explosions and, and, and fire, and the whole town is decimated because of this train wreck. A bunch of people lost their lives. Six million gallons of petroleum crude oil dumped from that tanker that day. They say that you could feel the heat of the fire a mile and a quarter away, two kilometers away. You look at a train and you don't think destruction and mayhem and you know, it's just not something that comes to your mind. You think you look at a train and you just think, cool, you know, collector item or something. Um, destruction isn't what you what you have in your in your head. And and sometimes things are like that. Uh, from the most unlikely places, we find some really terrible things. And that's kind of what we're gonna be talking about today. In Earth's final days, there's this spiritual danger that, that Revelation talks about. Some sort of power is going to exercise some terrible rule in the world. And remember the, the verse that says that, that Satan comes like a, an angel of light? I mean, he can be a roaring lion, but he kind of, he doesn't always present himself that way, does he? He's not the pitchfork-carrying, red-suited, you know, pale, 
for this. And that's not how he shows himself to us. Otherwise, we say, don't make a dude, uh, or we think he was the Halloween, uh, dressed up in Halloween costume. That's not how he presents himself. And so there's something about this power, this spiritual um, influence, that is attractive. And, and, and it doesn't look like it's bad. But ultimately, the end is really bad. Let's read about it in Revelation chapter 13. It's about a beast, is what it says. A beast. And remember in Revelation 14, it talks about the Creator. We know that the end of this story is that the Lamb wins. We can be confident in that. We need to look a little bit at the process. What's the battle like? So Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on its horns ten crowns, and on its heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon, who's the dragon? Satan, uh, Revelation 12 tells us that the dragon is Satan. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with it? What could this story be all about? And this, this is like, I don't know, some Harry Potter stuff almost. It's just like really out there wild weirdness. A beast with seven heads and crown or, or, or horns and all these weird things. Well, first of all, we need to let the Bible interpret itself. Let's not jump to conclusions about what these things are. And as we attempt to do this, I, I mentioned this verse, 2 Corinthians 11, 14, but Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. It seems like this piece is really awful when you, when you think about what it looks like and that we'd be easily dissuaded from it. We're, we're not going to follow this beast or worship this beast like Revelation says. But that's not really the case. It's, it's more attractive than that. Remember these final words that Jesus gave to the world. We've been reading uh, several times last week. We came to Revelation 14, 6 and 7. And so that was the first angel. And then there was a second angel that said, come out of her, my people. And then Revelation 14, 9 and 10 says, a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, and his image, and receive this mark on his forehead, or in his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb. That sounds really negative uh, when you think about that image. It's clear that the result of worshiping the beast is that you end up with the destruction that comes from hell, the, the lake of fire that we talked about on Saturday night. This is really the most serious warning that you can find in all of the New Testament. It's something we should pay attention to. Don't worship the beast, or else you'll, you'll experience the, the fires of God. This is an important subject, but it's also kind of a sensitive subject, because what we're about to uncover is something that's near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. John um, wrote this uh, more than 400 verses 
uh, in, in Revelation, the whole book of Revelation, that's more than 400 verses, and roughly three-quarter of those verses come from, or are at least uh, alluding to, things that we find in the Old Testament. So if we're going to understand these passages and try to figure out what they mean, we really need to go back and look at Daniel's sister book. Sorry, Revelation's sister book, Daniel. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, and uh, I've written some of it in the handout that you have, but so if you have your Bible with you, it would be great to open it up. Because we're going to look at several verses in Daniel chapter 7. So when we read about this beast, what was John talking about? Beast with seven heads and all this. In, uh, in John, I'm sorry, in Daniel chapter 7, 1 through 3, we read, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, when we're trying to figure this out, what, what are these beasts and things? The Bible actually tells us what it's mean, because there's a symbol, and then there's an interpretation of it. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 23 says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. So a beast, in, in this prophetic context, in a Apocalyptic um, prophecy, a beast is a kingdom. Uh, if you think about it, it makes sense. What's America represented as? An eagle, right? And uh, Great Britain, a lion, and we have we have these connections between nations and animals, even to this day. So it's not surprising that that uh, God would make some connection between the two. In fact, in in this uh, chapter, chapter 7 of Daniel, you find that Babylon is a lion, a winged lion. And if you look on the gates, the Ishtar gates, um, you can see them on Wikipedia or wherever you look on the internet. Just look up Ishtar gates and you'll, you'll see it. There's a, a lion with wings. Babylon itself represented it, uh, its nation as a lion's wing. So for God to use this illustration, a beast and equals a nation, Makes perfect sense. But then it says that the beast came up out of the sea. What is that? In Revelation 17 15, you find that the waters which you saw where the, where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes, nations and tongues. So in prophecy, waters or seas represent peoples. Now we're not talking about a person, we're not talking about a few dozen people. We're talking about huge groups of people, metropolises and, and nations and cities. So, so if we're gonna, gonna go to the wilderness, that's the opposite of cities. It's the opposite of a populated area. The, the uh, third sign or symbol that comes up is this idea of winds. And the winds, according to Jeremiah 25, 32, represent nations fighting with each other. So we're not talking about just wind blowing. Um, we're talking about nations clashing. So beast is a kingdom. A beast that rises up out of a, out of a sea is, is a, uh, a nation that rises from a populated area. And, um, and in the context of winds, we have nations fighting with each other. And these three principles, or these three interpretations, 
of symbols in prophecy are going to come up again and again. So it's good to uh, make a note of this, uh, make sure that it's clear. And I think I've had, I have it in your handout, so you don't even have to write it down. But, uh, but if I don't, yeah, go ahead and write it down so that you can have it in memory. So let's go through these beasts that are presented in Daniel chapter 7 and figure out what they are. Daniel 7, 4 says, The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Now, over in Daniel chapter 2, let's just pause with this one for a moment. In Daniel chapter 2, we had a dream. If you were here on the first night, Friday night, a week and a half ago, uh, Eric Flickinger talked about how we can, how do we know that the Bible is accurate? And he showed this, this uh, presentation with the image in Daniel chapter 2. And it's this, this guy, an item you might say, but the Bible says it's an image. So it's this guy in you know, cross arms or whatever, and, and, and he's you know, got traditional um, Babylonian soldier's garments. I don't know what he looked, might have looked like to, Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, but uh, just imagine him. He's got you know, head, arms, legs, whatever. And so Daniel goes through and he sees these different metals. The one on the, on the head was gold. The one on the chest was silver, and then the, the waist area was brass, and the legs were iron, and the feet were divided, iron and clay. Uh, and, and these, each one we found represented a nation. So Babylon was the first, it was the head of gold, and then Medo-Persia was the second, it was the, uh, the chest and arms of silver. Greece and then Rome and then the divided kingdom uh, after Rome broke apart. Now it's repeated, this idea is repeated, but with different symbols in Daniel chapter 7. Now Babylon is a lion, so the gold and the lion represent the same nation. The silver and then the bear, which we're going to look at in a second, represent the same nation. So there's uh, a re repetition. And this is another principle that we find in prophecy. Uh, there's a repetition and an enlargement as, as you go along. So what you read in Daniel 2 is repeated in a little bit different way with more details at the end. We'll find that instead of just the feet of iron and clay, now in Daniel chapter 7, we have uh, some more details about what happens after Rome collapses into ten kingdoms. And then, uh, so, so it repeats it, and then it enlarges it. It, it expands. And, and that's happening all throughout Daniel. And then when we get to Revelation, keep in mind that what Revelation is talking about is repeating what we've already heard previously from God in, in Daniel and other books of the Bible. So Daniel 7 5 says, And suddenly another beast, the second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So in, in uh, Daniel 2, we have a Chest and arms of silver, that's Medo-Persia. We find that right there in Daniel. We see the story, Daniel chapter 5 tells us about all that. But here in Daniel 7, we have a bigger picture of this. And this is before, the, the, this is during King Belshazzar's time. So Belshazzar hasn't, or Babylon hasn't fallen to Medo-Persia yet. And yet God is revealing what's about to happen. And one of uh, the, the, the beasts, it says it's raised up on one side, and one of the the nations, in the, the Medes and the Persians, one of them was stronger than the other. So the raised up on one side, indicating that 
that one would be stronger. And then it has three ribs in its mouth, like it's already destroyed something. And we find from his, the history books that Persia, Medo-Persia, had to conquer three other nations before it got to Babylon, kind of cleared the way uh, before it could get to Babylon. And so we've got three ribs representing that. So a repetition, but enlarging. Then uh, in verse 6, after this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Why wings? Well, in this case, it's Greece, and it indicates the speed. Wings um, are often talked about in prophecy as well as other places in the Bible as a metaphor for speed. Like the, um, the angels in Revelation 14 that fly in the midst of heaven, flying a lot faster than walking. And so uh, the, the wings represent a, a rapid conquest. And we find that Alexander the Great, he, was, he conquered the world in, in rapid time. He, was, he died what, in his 30s, early 30s. So he was able to conquer the world in just a, uh, less than a dozen years, I think. Why four heads? Well, when Alexander died, he didn't have an heir, and so four generals took his place, four leaders, and kind of ended up breaking apart um, Greece and making it a little easier for Rome to take over when we get to verse 7. And verse 7 says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. Remember the, the legs of iron? Here we have a similar uh, concept, but in, instead of legs, it's teeth. So teeth of iron. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So now you have, you have Rome, Medo-Persia, Greece, I'm sorry, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and now Rome um, in, this, uh, in this line of kingdoms. But what do those ten horns represent? What's going on there? Daniel 7, 24 explains what it means. These horns represent kings. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. So Daniel 2, the iron gave way to iron and clay, the feet of iron and clay. In Daniel 7, the beast, this terrible beast that's devouring everything, it, it gives way to these other ten kings. Of course, we're, there's a king, there's a kingdom. Uh, but it implies that there's some connection between the, the, the beast and these ten kingdoms. Because it's on the head of this uh, beast in Daniel 7. Now, it was, uh, Daniel 7, 8 says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them. So, if the ten horns are kings, uh, what's this little horn? Well, what's going on with that? Well, the Bible, the Bible gives us nine identifying marks, things that we can, like, a bullet point list, so to speak, and we can say, all right, well, if, if it has to be all of those things, what in history... Uh, in the time frame, in the place, in, you know, the characteristics, what, what matches up, uh, what fits that description. So, we can find this um, in Daniel 7, uh, verses 24 and 25, as well as some in Revelation chapter 13. So let's look at, at Daniel first. 
Daniel 7, 8. It says that this would be a little power. Uh, obviously, kings, uh, a horn is a king, so this little horn is some kind of king in the kingdom, but, uh, but it says it's little. Hmm. That may not sound like a helpful clue, but it will. I promise. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people that, that look at the beast from Revelation 13, and especially this little horn, and they, they, they connected with this Antichrist idea, and uh, well, some people think it's, it, it was uh, Gorbachev, you know, because he had that, that mark. I think they call it a port wine stain. It's something about the blood vessels when they were when he was a kid or something. And they thought, well, he is marked by, by the devil, and he, he's got the mark of the beast, and so he's, he's the Antichrist. He's the little horn. Other people thought it was Ronald Reagan, because if you take Ronald's first and middle and last name, they each have six letters in them, so 666, six, six, and so Ronald Reagan was, was the, the beast uh, of Revelation 13. But um, when you look at this, when you think of Russia, is Russia little? No, is, is, what about uh, America? Is America little? Could the king and kingdom connected with him um, then fit this description? So it narrows our focus. In Daniel 7 8, we also find that it came up among them, among the ten horns. Now, keep in mind the context. Rome is conquered by Medo-Persia, is conquered by Greece, is conquered by Rome. And in each of those cases, the, the, the kingdom expands. Rome takes it all, of Greece brings it into Europe, but Rome takes it all the way to the edge of, of Europe even going into Great Britain for a bit. And, uh, and so when this, when this little horn comes up among the ten kingdoms that have broken up from, from Rome, it's coming up where? Is it coming up in Asia? Is it coming up in the Americas? No, it's coming up in Western Europe, where those kingdoms were, being, uh, were, were reigning. Before now these uh, the, the names if you care to know them uh, are the Suevi, the Alamani, the Lombards, the Anglo-Saxons, the Vandals, the Visigoths, the Franks, the Ostrogoths, the Reli, and the Burgundians. Those are the ten kingdoms that took over after Rome. That Rome kind of divided into these. And if you want some modern day comparisons, the Burgundians would become the Swiss. The Franks, of course, the French, the Suevi, the Portuguese, the Alamani, the Germans, the Anglo-Saxons became the English, the Lombards, the Italians. So the, the little horn comes up among all of these. Now it says it come up after them in Daniel 7:24. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. So when we look at the history of Rome, by 300s we have Constantine. We talked about him a couple nights ago. And, uh, and it's by about 476 AD that we really have all of these other ten kingdoms that Rome has broken up and these ten kings, kingdoms are established. So, based on this prophecy, we can narrow it down in time. It has to be after 476 AD. Now, um, some people want to interpret this little horn power in the past. Uh, the, that kind of Prophetic interpretation is called preterism, as you care to know. Uh, but the idea is that that uh, all the interpretation of this stuff needs to be at the time of the writer. 
Well, if that's the case, then John was writing and, uh, and around the, the end of the first century. And so some people think that it was Nero that he's writing about. He's actually writing after the fact, in a way. And the uh, problem with that is if it arose after these Western European many kingdoms, then, uh, well, they wouldn't fit Nero at all. Nero died in 68 AD. He was dead long time before those, the Rome decline in these ten powers rose. So it couldn't, this little horn, as it arrives after uh, 476, couldn't have been Nero. In Daniel 7 8, it says that it plucks up three of these other kingdoms, plucks them up. What does that suggest? Rips them out of their roots. It's just, they've just been destroyed. Well, that's actually what happened. Um, it's a fascinating story. Uh, the Emperor Justinian was on the side of, of the Roman Church. Rome had kind of been um, off the uh, off the rails for a little while. It's just really fascinating history there. I'll tell you in a second um, more details about that one. It says in Daniel 7 8, in it were eyes like the eyes of a man. And it, it shouldn't be surprising at all that a man or a person would head up a kingdom. So the uh, a man at its head is kind of the idea. There's 725 in Daniel 7.5, it says that he would speak great words and blasphemies. Now, we're going to talk about some sensitive stuff um, that it's possible could offend somebody. I don't want to offend anybody, but we need to abide by what God says. So let's actually look at what the Bible says when we get to this subject. Um, in Daniel 7, 25, it also says it persecutes um, the saints, the people of God. Uh, and in, uh, it says it, that it thinks to change times and laws. And that's a significant mark. It helps us to narrow it down quite a bit. It rains for a time, times, and a half a time. Now this one uh, we're going to look at for a moment right now. What is this idea of time and times and half time? If you go back to Daniel chapter 4, read the story about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar writes about his time from becoming like a beast of the field. And uh, there's a term for that. I forget the, the psychological uh, term, but the idea is that, that he, became, he, he went to the wilderness and he, he was eating like a, an animal. And his nails grew long, his hair grew long, and it was just unkempt. It was, it was terrible. Well, it was prophesied because he was being really proud. He says, isn't this the great Babylon which I had built? And God wanted his heart. And so he knew in order to pursue his heart, he needed to humble the man. And he gave Nebuchadnezzar a vision, and Daniel interpreted it. And, and it was that he would be in the wilderness like an animal until seven times passed over him. And anybody reading this, it's fairly clear what it's saying. And we know from uh, from the some of the, the Hebrew words and whatnot, and also from history, that it was seven years. So seven times are seven years. And in that case, then this time, times, and half a time would be well, it would be one year a time, a couple years times, and a dividing or a half of a time, or a half of a year. So 
So one plus two plus a half would be three and a half. This actually uh, a time period that appears several times, like six times throughout um, the book of Daniel. It's uh, mentioned as 1,260, it's mentioned as days, it's mentioned as 42 months, and it's mentioned as a time, times, and half a time. Uh, and just to clarify, Daniel, his calendar, it wasn't the same as ours. He had 360 days in his calendar. And so when he saw a year, he saw 360 days. So let's, let's add that. 360 plus uh, 360 plus 360 plus half of 360. If you, if you wrote it down, it was 1,260. Also, a month was just 30 days. And so when it's another place where it says 42 months, that it ran for 42 months, 42 times 30 would be 1,260. So there's, I, I know those numbers aren't the most fun thing to think about, but it's important because it, it nails it down in a period of time. It would rain for 1,260 years. Now, Revelation 12 and 13, um, also add uh, more of these numbers to that picture. Uh, 1260 days, a time, times, and half a time, um, and 42 months are mentioned again in the book of Revelation. If you want it, uh, a reference point, this idea, well, I, I should point out, remind you, I guess, that in prophecy, a day equals a year. A year. So when it says that it'll rain for 1260 days, or for three and a half years, or for 42 months, is that saying literally only 42 months or three and a half years? No, it's saying 1260 years. And for a reference, you can look at Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34, uh, if you want to see some direct application of that day per year principle in prophecy. And also, we studied Daniel 9. Remember the story of the Messiah? That 490 years, or 70 weeks as it's presented in Daniel 9, ended right at Jesus' first coming. It was a perfect application. So that's a practical application in prophecy. We have all of these, all of these uh, identifying marks. What are this? Well, if we're going to really understand this, um, we need to not take other people's opinions uh, and then say, well, that's what it is. But it is a good idea to get to know uh, maybe what some people thought about this. Back in October 15, uh, 1517, right around 501 years ago, a guy named Martin Luther, he nailed 95 points of uh, well, discussion would be the best way of putting it. He wanted to have a debate about the, the church, and really the only church around at the time was the Roman Catholic Church. He, named, he nailed these 95 points to this wall, and, uh, and they became known as Luther's 95 Theses. His idea was that there was corruption in the church, and he wanted to correct that corruption. In, in time, Martin Luther came to the conclusion and began to claim that Rome was this little horn of Bible prophecy. Not just Rome, Italy, but the Roman Church. This Rome was the beast that was referred to in Revelation 13, according to Martin Luther. And it wasn't only Martin Luther who believed this. In uh, 
in that time, there's there's reformers all around uh, that were saying, we need reform in the church. We need to get back to God's word. John Knox, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, believed that the little horn from Daniel and the first nation talked about in Revelation 13, that beast, uh, were both the church of Rome. John Calvin, the French reformer, he was based in Geneva, Switzerland, and he believed the same thing, as did Roger Williams, the, the man who started the, the first Baptist church on American soil. And then there was John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. He also believed the same thing. Now, why in the world would um, the Church of Rome find itself in the crosshairs of these reformers? Why would it be the focal point of their interpretation of Daniel 2? Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. Well, just a little bit of background. I mentioned that, that Rome was kind of struggling. Um, well, Rome was not the capital of the Roman Empire anymore. And the Roman Empire had kind of gone downhill anyway. They moved the capital to Constantinople, and Rome was left unguarded, unprotected. There was hardly even a garrison there. The weeds were growing up around it. The roads were in disrepair. And while well, the emperor, the, the, not the emperor, but the, the city leader, uh, what are they called? Governor? Governor, yeah, there you go. The city governor uh, was, uh, well, the, the, the power position was vacant. And it, it just so happened, whenever anybody would come to attack Rome, that the, the bishop in Rome, had the most influence. And so he would go out and he would offer the money of the church to persuade them to go away and not attack. Or they would come out and, uh, and he would gather the people and say, let's fight. And so they would, they would save off uh, an attack. And so the, the bishop of the church in Rome began to take on the civil authority of the governor of Rome. And it was in the mid-500s that Emperor Justinian decided that he was going to help Rome out. And he came in, now the, the kingdoms had already been broken up by now. Justinian was the emperor in name only. He wasn't over anything but his little territory. He happened to be in Constantinople, and so he thought of himself as the emperor of the Roman Empire, even though the Roman Empire didn't exist at that time. So he brought his armies down, and he, he ended up um, he ended up uh, attacking some people, that, some nations that were trying to come after Rome and drove them out. And it was, as a result, he established the bishop in Rome and the Roman church as the mother of all the churches in, in Christianity and as the uh, foundation for all of the laws of the governments in Western Europe. And in fact, he created this thing called the Justinian Law Code, and it's like a series of 10 or 12 books. And you can trace throughout Europe, and even in the United States, you can trace our laws and, and many of the ways that, that we do our government system back to Justinian's Law Code. And in there, he identifies the Catholic Church as that, the foundation of civil government. Uh, there, there's something else that happened, though, because as 
uh, the Roman church became popular and, and, and it became the, the, the thing, it started to, well, pagans started to come in and they brought their idols with them. The church had to figure out, well, what do we do with idols? And they, they had the option of throwing out the idols or throwing out the law that prohibited idols. They decided to throw out the law. And so they removed the second commandment from the Ten Commandments. In fact, if you go to, to the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome today, inside the Vatican, you'll find a beautiful statue of St. Peter. Except it's not really a statue of St. Peter. It's a statue of Jupiter. And they just christened it, brought it into the church, christened it, and called it St. Peter. Um, and that's kind of the, how the, the church ended up relating um, to pagan worship. They just allowed it to come into this church. And down through time, through time uh, the church has allowed tradition to replace truth. Which is why they started teaching that uh, when people die, many of them will go to purgatory. And, uh, and, and the result of that was they got some money because they could say, well, if you pay some money and do some things on behalf of, of those dead people, they, they could get out of purgatory and get out. And it's also why the, the people started praying for the saints. In fact, there's a story. Um, there's a story of a, the, of a martyr in, in the time when Rome was uh, killing Christians. And they, they buried the, the martyr, and they were well loved by their community. So people kept going out there praying. And they would just kind of gather around the martyr's tomb and thank God for the, the witness of their life. But, but also they would kind of have these worship services and hang out around there. And uh, there's a, a priest that said, that's not a good idea. Um, we don't want them to do their own thing. And so the priest worked it out, and they, they had a, uh, a church built around this martyr's grave. And that way they could capitalize on the assembly of these people that love that martyr. And that's kind of, you basically go to any uh, Catholic church today, and you'll find, or you know, at least the big ones, you'll find some great uh, saint's tomb uh, somewhere down there in the, the bowels of that, of that church. And, and so they, the, the church kind of adopted these traditions. Uh, they were praying around the saint's tomb, and pretty soon they were praying to the saint. Um, going to the priest to confess their sins, teaching salvation through the sacraments rather than through Jesus Christ. So, who is this little horn? We looked at these identifying marks. Well, let's just compare. If, to see if Luther was right. Did, did his conclusions make sense? Did they match history or not? First of all, is it little? Yeah. As a nation, the, the Rome, just the city of Rome, is fairly small, and that was kind of where the um, the Roman Pontiff, Roman Catholic Church's head, um, has civil authority. Uh, but they established a Vatican City as well. It was even smaller. It's the smallest nation, smallest nation on earth. What about this other one among the the horns? Did it rise up in Europe? Right there in Western Europe. Yes, it did. What about after? Did it come after those um, horns? Yeah, it wasn't until 538 that Justinian uh, gave this authority over to the, the Bishop of Rome, that he would become kind of the, the overarching authority over all of, of uh, European government. 
What about the did it pluck up these other three um, chords? Yes, it did. Uh, in fact, it was at this time when they were struggling and Justinian came to their help that um, there was three of these uh, ten nations that were trying to attack and eliminate Rome. And it was over a disagreement of doctrine. And as a result of this disagreement of doctrine, and Rome having a little bit more power because Justinian was coming in, they wiped out, they just totally wiped out these other three nations. Not just, not just the soldiers that were coming to fight them, but they, they eliminated the entire nation. And so they don't, you, you won't find a comparison with three of those ten kingdoms I mentioned in modern uh, Europe. What about uh, eyes of a man? Does it, does it have a man in its head? Yeah, the, the Pope, the Roman, interesting that they would use this word, but the Roman see. Eyes of a man. Uh, great words and blasphemies. I, I mentioned this was a sensitive one, and I would like to understand what does the Bible say? In John 10, 33, uh, we're told the Jews answered Jesus, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. This idea that a person would call himself God is considered blasphemy in the Jewish mind. Down through the years, Rome has made some fascinating claims and said some things that would land it on the wrong side of this verse in John 10.33. For instance, Pope Leo XIII said this, The supreme teacher in the church is the Roman pontiff. Union of minds therefore requires together with a perfect accord in, one, in the one faith, complete submission and obedience of the will to the church and to the Roman pontiff as to God himself. That's a pretty boastful claim. Uh, but uh, it's not the only and not even the uh, most uh, significant. In uh, four years later, the same Pope, Pope Leo XIII, said, We hold upon this earth, we being the Pope's, uh, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. This may not be the view held by every person who's attending Mass every Sunday. But it certainly is the view of the organization and the theology behind it. Another definition of blasphemy is found in Luke 5.21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The sin is committed against God. Only God can forgive that. Jesus took it as though sin had been committed against him, and he forgave it. And they were saying that that's blasphemous. Is it okay for a human to forgive sins or to suggest that they can? No. It's not okay. If I, if I said that I forgive you for a sin you committed against God, then you could just say, thanks, but I need to go to God. Pope John Paul II, just a few years ago, said, being undermined by the sometimes widespread idea that one can obtain forgiveness directly from God, even in a habitual way, without approaching the sacrament of reconciliation. He said you can't get forgiveness by going directly to God. You have to have this sacrament of reconciliation. <coughs> when a person goes to confession and they confess their sins, I'm told that the priest responds, uh, when appropriate, I suppose, ego te absolvo, or I absolve you. And I, I think the church would suggest that what they're saying is that they're, they're speaking on behalf of God. That God is really the one who absolves and forgives. But the words are, I absolve you. They're taking the prerogatives of God. 
We don't need a representative. The Bible says that Jesus is our priest. We don't need a go-between between you and, and God. When you confess your sins to God, he forgives you, he says. The Bible is clear about how forgiveness works. So, in Daniel 7.25, we have all these indications. And one of them is that Rome would persecute uh, the people of God. Is there evidence that that happened? Throughout the Dark Ages, from about that time, 538 AD on, we find that, that the church would take on power, civil power, and then it would send out that civil power in the form of armies to do its bidding. The Spanish Inquisition and, and many other similar things, um, where the church commissions the civil government to go out and destroy people. Millions, millions lost their lives at the hands of the Roman church because they dared to believe the Bible rather than the Roman tradition. Today you can visit a spot in southern Germany where the reformer John Huss uh, was burned to death because he held the Bible above church traditions. If you go to Oxford, England, you can visit the spot where Latimer and Ridley were burned at the stake in 1556. Just months later, another martyr named Cranmer was killed in the same way. His story is fascinating. If you haven't read it, I'd recommend looking up Cranmar's story on online. It Rome did this again and again and again. Wherever, and in fact, it happens wherever a religious power, a religious uh, institution, gains political and civil power, they persecute those who disagree with their religion. And you can see that in Islam and in any other place, but it's definitely true here in uh, the. What I have one of these identifying marks of this little foreign power. Does that mean that all religions that persecute are this little foreign? <coughs> no. Because they have to match up with all nine of these points in order for it to connect with this verse. So let's look at the next one. Things to change times and laws. This is from the Converts Catechism. Um, just as an example, I mentioned already that the second commandment was removed, but they also, because they're not ten anymore, there are going to be nine since they removed the second commandment. They had to split apart this, the tenth commandment because it's kind of long. It said, Don't covet your neighbor's wife. And so they, they made that one commandment, commandment number nine. And then don't come, covet your neighbor's property. And that was commandment number ten. Um, so now, uh, the other example I've also mentioned already is that the church removed uh, the solemnity from the Sabbath on Saturday to Sunday. And here's from the Converts Catechism, page 50. Which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. And what happens, what happened over time was that the church, um, well, there, there, there was an increased dependence on its tradition instead of upon uh, Jesus. And, and God's word. And instead of the, the sacrifice of Christ being sufficient more and more, it was the church's intercession or the church's sacraments or the church's, um, you know, it goes on and on. In uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia, it says, the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day to the first day of the week, made the third commandment to refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy of the Lord's day. Rome says, pray to a man for forgiveness of sins. Rome said, obey the law, not 
not the law of God, but the law that it instituted, the law of men. Rome said you can have salvation through the church, not through Jesus. Uh, Rome said don't wait to be baptized uh, to, when you believe, but uh, baptize your children when they're, when they're little. We can talk about all kinds of things. But the, the thing that matters most, I think, is that Jesus says, Come unto me, all of you who, are, who labor and are heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus saying that. Not, not the church, not any church. It's not coming unto any church to be saved and to get rest. Come to Jesus. Daniel 7.25 says that this entity will reign for 1,260 years. It began in 538 AD when Justinian gave his power over to the Roman bishop. But if you add 1,260 years to that, you get to 1,798, 1798. What's happening at 1798? And this is significant. Uh, Napoleon, and there's the French Revolution that was going on, and Napoleon was leading the French army, and Napoleon was on a, a, a uh, quest to remove religion from Europe. And so he would go and he would conquer a nation, but he wouldn't just conquer the nation. Uh, and, and it's funny that the leaders of that nation, the king or queen or wherever, whatever, would flee mostly to uh, Brazil. And, uh, and so they would flee to Brazil and, and leave their governments exposed. And Napoleon would restructure everything. And something, the church had a, a significant amount of property. About a third of, of Europe was owned by the church by the time Napoleon was making war. And so Napoleon would take away all that property from the church, and he'd remove all of the priests and uh, church leaders from government positions that they had been, uh, that they'd have power in. And he returned that to the people. And then uh, he went back to, to France. Well, in 1798, kind of as a capstone, Napoleon's general, General Berthier, went to Italy, into the heart of Rome, captured the, the then Pope Pius, and uh, took him prisoner, where he died a, a year later. But what was significant is that the, the Catholic Church completely lost their power in Europe over the, the political uh, field of Europe. And so we see um, that all nine of these, little among the other horns, after the other horns, plucked up three of the horns, um, headed up by a man, the eyes of a man, great words and blasphemies against God, persecutes the saints, things to change times of love, reigns for 1260 years, all of these things exactly line up with the Bible's prophecy about this little horn's power. Is the, is the focus on the people here? No. When you look at a whole nation, there are so many individuals in the nation that uh, you can't judge each one as the whole. And when, when the Bible talks about this little horn power, there's a lot of people involved in this, in this nation or, or religion uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. And the Bible isn't talking about the individuals. It's really speaking to the whole. It's speaking to the system. There's great people. Jesus, to the Jews who thought that they were all that, he says, there's other sheep that I have that are not of this fold. He's like, I've got people everywhere. So it's not so much about the people, it's about the system. It's been some years now, 
but Time Magazine ran this cover article that talked about the Holy Alliance where former President Reagan and uh, Pope John Paul II worked together to overthrow communism. There is no other church that can be uh, that can say that it has that kind of political authority, that political influence. Even today, the Catholic Church it has significant influence. The um, when relations between Cuba and the United States started to uh, normalize and get better, Pope Francis was the one who could take credit for bringing that political alliance together. You don't see um, world leaders going to the Baptist church headquarters uh, for conventions or, or any other church headquarters, but you do see them going to the Vatican. There's a, a tie that the church still has with government, and, and there's a power that it still possesses. And we'll look at that um, in coming nights. I believe Saturday night we're going to talk about some of those, those details and figure out what, what's happening going forward. Because this prophecy, it, it pretty much ended in 1798. So what's next is a, a question that we should ask. But I think the, the thing we can take from this whole study is that the Bible needs to be our guide. As soon as we let our opinions or our traditions become the thing that, that sets our agenda and establishes our morals, then we're on the wrong track. The Bible, when it's our guide, then it says what's right and wrong. And it helps to cut through all of the mess and all of the doctrines of men and all of the doctrines even of Satan himself, who Revelation 13 suggests is the leader of this beast power. And, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to cast stones at individuals. Sounds like I'm saying they're worshiping the devil, but that's not really what I'm meaning. Just that the, the devil is influencing this agenda. I'm reminded of something that happened off the coast of uh, New South Wales, Australia. A man was on a yacht and he got into a storm. His, his uh, mast broke and he didn't have a way to, to get around. And uh, his radio was broken. Nobody uh, knew where he was. They knew he was gone, but nobody knew where he was. And so the Coast Guard there in Australia, um, trying to look for him after the storm, uh, they asked uh, airplanes that were coming in, commercial airplanes, to look for this plane. One pilot heard the request of an Air Canada 777. It was coming in to land at Kingsford Smith International Airport with 270 passengers on board, and the, the pilot radioed back to everybody else on the plane and said, we're going to go look for this boat. And so they went from 35,000 feet down, 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 down to 4,000 feet, just barely skimming above the water. And everybody was looking and looking everywhere, and they, and they found it. They found the boat. They reported it in. The man was saved. Hmm. Can you imagine being lost on the ocean and, and uh, help comes flying down in the form of this huge plane? Jesus is our help from above. We are on a, a world that is largely influenced and manipulated by the devil. Even religions, things that look like they should be good things, can end up having a nasty and, and traumatic surprise at the end. But Jesus comes down in the midst of, 
of all that trauma and all of that storm, and, and he saved us on the cross. And he promises that he's going to come down again, and he's going to save us and, and remove sin from this world. Tonight, would you make the decision in your heart that you would put Jesus as your head and God's word as your foundation? Ask God to give you the grace to follow his word, no matter what, no matter what others 